this week on Dig Me Out. your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we are back with another roundtable discussion. This one is going to be interesting, I think. I hope. This is, uh, what are we doing, this once a, once a season? No, we're going to do it twice a year. Oh, okay, uh, good. We, we piloted this type of uh, roundtable last fall when we did our Van Halen in the 90s, where we took a look at a very successful band, from the 80s and how they responded to the shifting musical climate of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that we concluded that in on the survive or die scale, uh, the 90s kind of killed Van Halen or Van Halen killed Van Halen. One or the other. It just, but it just happened in the 90s. It just happened in the 90s, correct. So this time... We're taking a slightly different approach, as in we're, we're taking a band that was successful in the 90s, or excuse me, in the 80s, but actually got more successful in the 90s, and how did that turn out for them? Yeah. And that band we're talking about is Metallica. To help us do so, I have assembled a roundtable crew for this discussion, which I have assigned Metallica-appropriate nicknames to each person. Oh no. Yes. And we don't know what they are. And you That's don't know the what they are. We don't know what they are. So, from Dallas, Texas, Unforgiven Eric Grubbs. <laughs> Hi guys. That's good. I'm the Unforgiven. Better than Unforgiven 2 or 3 though. There you go, exactly. One of our people in Cleveland, Ohio, Matt Prince Charming Wardlaw. Welcome <laughs> back. <laughs> As his Hello, wife, Anna. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as his wife, Annie Fixer Zaleski. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that guffaw. Hello. Oh, uh, there we go. That's our crew for this episode. I did contact Metallica management to see if any of them would like to join. We were not responded to. So, and I actually reached out to Metallica, beat Metallica too. None of them could make it onto the show. So. Oh, come on. Yeah. Anybody here a Beatallica fan? Absolutely. I uh, I booked them for a show at one point here in Cleveland. Excellent. I am a huge fan of Beatallica. Yes. Two thumbs up over here, too. And, Tim, I'd like to say thank you for not uh, nicknaming me like Low Man's Lyric or something that was like derogatory. <laughs> I'll, I'll take Prince Charming. <laughs> oh, no. I would, I would uh, only the best for our roundtable guests. There'd be no low blows, no of <laughs> of wolf and man, or my friend of misery, or something like that. Um, so I want to start with I want to gauge everybody's I guess when they were introduced to Metallica, when you when you started listening to Metallica, and then what your overall sort of like Metallica level of fandom is before we start this conversation. So I have a baseline to, because when we did the Van Halen episode, I was we were. Uh, quite shocked that Chip Midnight actually had not listened to any Van Halen in the '90s, and uh, kind of threw us for a loop. So I need to I need to uh, uh, vet everybody to make sure you've actually listened to the entire Garage Inc. recordings before we get into this. <laughs> Matt, 
when did you first start listening to Metallica and, and where would you place yourself on the fandom? My first big Metallica memory, um, like I would think a lot of folks, was like seeing like the uh, the video for one, you know, Circa and Justice for All on MTV. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been aware of Metallica before that, but that was when they really, really fell onto my radar. And um, then from that point, I definitely was on board and, you know, went back and investigated Kill Mall and Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and, um, then I was also working in radio for a good portion of the nineties. So like, as a lot of those records were coming out, uh, I guess, starting with like the load record, that was stuff that we were playing a lot on the radio. So, uh, Metallica was something that like, even if I would not have liked them, it wasn't really something I could get away from because they were kind of ever present. But, um, as far as being a fan, I would say that, um, I've been, for at least the past 20, 25 years, uh, a very big fan of Metallica, following everything that they do. Um, Even if they go and they release an album with Lou Reed, because that would never happen, would it? Um, You know, there hasn't been anything that Metallica has done that I haven't at least given a listen to. And I would say that more often than not, uh, I like what Metallica does and um, hoping that they can make another record that is in the strong vein of the uh, Death Magnetic record. So I hope that... uh, they kind of got back to, in my opinion, being Metallica with that record. I hope they will continue to be Metallica with the next record. Cool. Eric, how about you? I seem to remember when I was growing up in New Orleans seeing the Metallica logo here and there, and it was pretty terrifying. And then I saw the one video, and it would be on MTV during regular daytime hours. Now, seeing a video like that where a man has lost almost all of his... Well, he's he's lost his arms, lost his legs, (laughs) and... He cannot speak. I mean, it was terrifying, mm-hmm. okay? And I, I would try to make fun of it, try to dispel, try to counter my fear with it. I'd make fun of it, but um, it terrified me. And that was third, fourth grade for me. And then when I was in seventh grade, I remember seeing the Inner Sandman video on MTV. And I was like, oh, it's Metallica. They're going to scare me again. But the thing was is that I kept hearing the song, and I got so into it. I mean, it's a very catchy song, a very catchy opening riff that uh, a couple years later for my birthday, when I was a freshman in high school, my friends bought me the live shit binge and purge box set. And a year or two after that, I became a member of the Metallica fan club. And I was a member of that for a few years. And so it was leading up to load and reload. And so like I got some pretty interesting exclusives like them fucking around in the studio uh <laughs> them ju- i mean them just like you know jamming and and also footage of them uh, you know just uh, driving contest winners around san francisco they got a, a whole all access pass to experience uh, being around metallica and i got the so what magazine quarterly and i would read through it um, I, and I distinctly remember when Load came out, I was in London and I got it actually the day before it came out in America because at that time uh, records came out on Tuesdays in uh, America and in England and Europe, they came out on Mondays. So I got the Vertigo copy of Load and I remember being on the tube and listening to Ain't My Bitch and hoping that uh, my parents didn't see the name of that first song. <laughs> but... Um, <clears throat> As uh, as y'all know, uh, is that I, I've continued to be a Metallica fan. I'm a huge, huge defender of Saint Anger. Some Kind of Monster is just an exceptional documentary, not just yeah. really about you know a band in crisis. 
It's more about um, what happens when things are not addressed and what in, and what kind of damage that can do for years down the line. And that I think can translate far beyond whether you like Metallica's music or not. And Death Magnetic, I thought, was a phenomenal record. And I'm really looking forward to what they do. So that, in a nutshell, is how much of a fan I am of Metallica. Cool. Hey, Tim, I'd like to move to quickly rename Eric to Eric Hetfield Grubbs because he took this podcast from being family-friendly to Hetfield-worthy bad language in about the first 20 seconds he was talking. <laughs> yeah! Oh, yeah! Well done. Excellent job, Eric. Annie, to you. So I think very similar to a lot of other people. So I started watching MTV pretty much religiously around fall 92 and then heavily into 93. And that was pretty much the height of every Black Album video. And so I was super, super into that. Like at that point, actually, I was really into like Megadeth had an awesome song out and like Def Leppard had stuff out. And I was really into that stuff. Like for my I remember when I for my 13th birthday, I asked my parents for a copy of the Black Album and a Metallica shirt that had a, br a brown snake on it that said, don't tread on me. I did not get either of them. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> to this day, I still remember that. I was so mad. That's all I wanted for my birthday. I did not get that. Um, and so that, and then, yeah, and the video for one, like just, uh, you know, just basically like, cause they would put that in rotation too. And it was just mind blowing. And so, but I was such a fan that when, so Metallica, when they went on the low tour, they played two nights in Cleveland. And I waited, I went to a stop and shop Ticketmaster outlet with a friend of mine at like eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And we ended up waiting in line for an hour and a half, just kind of sitting there to get tickets for the tour. And so like, it was funny, it was the two of us. And then like some guy we knew from band then showed up like maybe like an hour into it. So we got tickets. And so we had tickets in like the front row of like the upper level, like super good seats. And that was my second concert ever was the load tour. And so I was really, really, really into Metallica. It lost me a little bit on Reload, I think, as with everyone else, as we'll probably talk about. Um, but I was a pretty, pretty big fan. And then I, I, I liked Death Magnetic as well, I think, Green. I don't think it was, I, I'm not necessarily as into it as everyone else was, but I, you know, I thought that was actually pretty good. I, I don't know if I can vouch for St. Anger, though. But, but yeah, like with everyone else said, it was basically all that stuff. Then I went backwards. Like I bought a bunch of the, the records on cassette, so I had them somewhere. I think I have Kill 'Em All and Cassette or something in my parents' house. So I definitely, from like the Black Album, I went back, got everything from the 80s. And basically now every time they stream a show and we can watch it, like chances are I'll stay up watching it. Because when they when they did the um, the show at uh, uh, Candlestick Park, whatever that is called down in San Francisco before the Super Bowl, like we, we totally put it on our TV. And like I watched the entire thing, stayed up until like 1.30 in the morning here. So Cool. So yeah. Well, it seems like there is a common thread that a lot of people discovered them on, or or were first at least visually introduced to them on on the one video. Jay, is that the same for you? No, I I go back to probably eighty six, eighty seven. So I became aware of bands at this point through um, Jean Jacket patches. <laughs> um, my nice. Jean Jacket had lots of Kiss and Van Halen and Rat and Ace Frehley and more of that kind of thing, hard rock and pop metal. And then there were the kids that somehow were able to f like spend most of their time, like not going to any classes other than shop class. <laughs> and they would have Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer and Anthrax. 
And I remember at the time thinking, what is this about? And the pus head, at that point, Metallica only ever used, I think, pus head, the artist, for all of their artwork. It was always really dark and scary. And, and then they got added to the Monsters of Rock tour in 1988 with Van Halen, Scorpions, and Dokken. And uh, I was like, well, I like three of those bands. What's this band about? And I didn't quite, I didn't get it at the time. It was way too, you know, dark and just not, I, I didn't quite understand it. I remember there being a huge to-do for years. So I probably became aware of them around Master Puppet. So between then and when the Justice for All came out, that's, you know, two years. The fact that they hadn't done a video. I mean, that was a big deal that they were this at that point, really, truly an underground band in a lot of ways, um, because they hadn't, you know, they hadn't gotten any radio play at all. Um, they hadn't released a video, and yet they were able to, you know, do a stadium tour with with Van Halen. So it was kind of a huge deal when Injustice for All came out, and they finally decided to do their first video in one. So by that point, it was it was built up, at least um, from my memory. Um, as a big landmark moment for them. And then obviously the video they do is unlike any other video we had seen at that time, at least, you know, that was played during the daytime um, on MTV. And then I, I, I was more of a, also dating myself here, there were bands that um, with the limited funds that I had in the 80s as a kid, um, there were bands I would go out and actually buy the cassette. And then there were bands I would dub from friends on on those colorful Memorex uh, tapes. Metallica was always a band that I would dub um, just to hear what was, you know, what the albums were like. And um, I don't think it was until Death Magnetic that I actually paid money to own a Metallica record. Wow. Uh, but I was, you know, obviously well aware of them. And I consider myself, I guess, a casual fan. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of songs that I like. I just, you know, I have never seen them live and I've never, up until Death Magnetic, had never actually bought an album. Hmm. Well, I have probably a story, I guess, closer to, or in a history, closer to everybody else, not like yours, Jay. It was the one video, and then I kind of was like, okay, that was cool. Didn't really start, like, paying attention until the Black Album. Then, for some reason, I don't remember being a huge Black Album fan. I liked the singles, but I didn't own the album. I felt compelled then to go to the Midnight Sale for Load uh, while I was in college and bought it. I, I, I don't know why. Like, I, I might have heard the single. I think it was Hero of the Day was the was the first single released off that. Until I've, It Sleeps was the first single. Oh, it was Until It Sleeps? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I guess that hooked me. I heard that on the radio. I was like, I got to go to the Midnight Sale for that. Because <laughs> I did. I, I remember playing that album a lot. And then getting, when Reload came out, I kind of lost interest at that point. And I you know, I listened to St. Anger when it came out. I didn't particularly care for it. I didn't see the documentary until probably five or six years after it came out because I just wasn't, in the early 2000s, just wasn't listening to a lot of heavy music and didn't really care that much. But when Death Magnetic came out, I was definitely like, oh, this this is something that I can get into. Um, I know there was some people that complained about the compression on that album, but... People that didn't want to review the record. Yeah, <laughs> and it was their job to review it, and so like, oh, this sucks. And I was like, oh man. 
Yeah, it didn't bother me. Anyway, anyway. I, I, I like that album a lot. And I went back and I've gone back and listened to Injustice for All, Master of Puppets, Red Lightning, and all that stuff and became fairly familiar with it, mostly through going to the gym and being on the treadmill for 40 minutes. I would just make a Metallica mix and I would just like listen to as much Metallica to get through the 45 minutes on the treadmill. So that's probably how I became familiar, mostly most familiar with their albums. I want to walk through the decade of Metallica in the 90s and kind of trace their story to figure out how they fared in the 90s. In terms of, I think it's safe to say that they led off the decade with probably one of the most unprecedented shifts in music history, going from this, as Jay mentioned, they were essentially an underground band that had made one video, although they were able to parlay that success into stadium tours, they didn't have the, I guess you'd say, uh, mainstream name recognition, and yet they go into the studio with Bob Rock in 1990, and in August of 91, the Black Album was released, and pretty much out of the gate is a massive success. I remember the video for Enter Sandman being constantly played on MTV, and all of a sudden, like, you could not escape Metallica at that point. Did anybody else have, like, this realization, like, oh my god, this band is, like, ginormous all of a sudden? Or was it just sort of part of the cultural zeitgeist that was just sort of floating around? In the same way, like, you know, Guns N' Roses had already been huge with Appetite for Destruction and... We're sort of continuing that with Use Your Illusion. I don't know. I, I kind of was like taken aback as a 15 or 16-year-old whenever that happened in 90. What were your all thoughts? Yeah, I mean, more familiar with the first 10 years of the band or so. Like I said, that there was nothing commercial about anything they did. So to go from that to suddenly, you know, one got some radio airplay and obviously got played on MTV a lot to go. But that was still a pretty progressive song and very very dark to go from that to what happened on the black album where they became the mtv band was incredible for me i i I just i i i I think anybody who said they predicted that what could have happened is is lying i don't think anybody could have ever seen that as as a possibility but it happened thank i think in large part to not only them but also Bob Rock made that all possible. I mean, well, it's interesting when you look at the trajectory of like how it happened for Metallica because it's like basically I think part of the story was that they liked what Rock had done with the Dr. Feelgood record for Motley Crue. And obviously Dr. Feelgood's the record that really, really blows things up for Motley Crue. And the Black Album for Metallica was the same exact thing. I mean, that, I mean definitely as a music fan, I just remember – seeing them suddenly become so huge and they're one of the first bands that I remember as a music fan in the time period that I was listening to music just being amazed at how they were on tour for that record for like probably close to three years I mean there was no escaping in that era just how massive that band had become yeah I'll also add this guys is that um, in 96 Kirk Hammett I believe was asked in So What magazine why don't you make another record like Master of Puppets? And his response was, well, we already made Master of Puppets. And I'd go a little bit further and say they already kind of tried to replicate the sound of Master of Puppets on Injustice for All. So when they were going into the Black Album, they were like, man, 
I think we've kind of tired out this whole thing of like eight minute songs. And what if we did just simpler riffs? And this was all stuff that they wanted to do. They were not trying to become commercially successful. It was just more of like they had exhausted, you know, just these multi-lever, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it it made for a very fresh turn. It was still hard and heavy. And it, to me, like that has what, that's what has made Metallica much more of an interesting band to check out every record as compared to, yes, I'm going to go there, Slayer. Now, Slayer is the <laughs> band that, quote unquote, stayed underground. But to be honest, when it comes to me as a listener, what Slayer records do I really want to listen to to just kind of get a good idea of what their overall sound is? Seasons in the Abyss and Rain and Blood. That's it, you know? And it's like, to me, there's so many aspects to Metallica that I'm glad that they made that kind of shift with the Black Album. Yeah. That record, to me, especially as I revisited it, it, it invented a new... It invented what heavy metal sounded like for from then until now in a lot of ways. Oh, for like, sure. Yeah. Yep. That heavy groove, slowing things down. Like I think you mentioned, Eric, where it was like, okay, we don't have to like gallop and go a thousand miles an hour all the time. We can still be heavy, but actually have a have a groove and have big thick riffs. So, yeah, I mean, it was. I didn't see it coming. I mean, I knew they were working with Bob Rock, but you're like, oh, okay, he just did Dr. Feelgood, and now he's working with Metallica. What in the world is this going to be? <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to put those two things together. And, yeah, I, I was. it was unlike anything I'd heard to that point. They invented something completely new, at least for me. Did anybody hear at the time from people that who were metal fans that you knew that did, – did they get tagged with the sellout? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I think there were there was a good segment of Metallica fans that are you know still bitching about the turn that Metallica took with that record. You know, I, I mean, it's. I think Jason kind of alluded to it, but I mean, the production values take a big shift, and suddenly they have this you know big shiny you know clean sound, and you know the drum sound. Like obviously, there were a good number of folks after this record that wanted that drum sound. I mean, they 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 set a real standard with this record with the sound of the record but yeah i mean as far as the folks that had bought like the uh, kill em all ride the lightning and you know master of puppets and justice like there were a lot of folks that cried foul like you know hey what happened to our band that was like actually a metal band what's going on here yeah and and the strange thing is that every record that they've made from kill em all to ride the lightning they've been given they had been given the sellout tag got to remember ride the lightning has a ballad on it even though it has oh, a real true. rock out part, you know, but people were like, what is this? And well, to me, like, that's the Cliff Burton influence. And I know we're talking more about the 80s here, but Cliff Burton was such an open minded music fan that it had such a major impact on the, the band members while he was alive. And especially after he died, that it makes a lot of sense that they wanted to try something different in the turn of the 90s. And also, there is groove-centered stuff on Master of Puppets as well as And Justice for All. Harvester of Sorrow. You know, what is and what should never be. You know? Uh, the thing that... Jeez. I'm thinking of that horrible train cover of what is and what should never be. The thing that should not be. The thing that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, I Sorry. remember hearing that part of the reason why there was some adjustment in the tempos 
was because uh, James Hetfield wanted to sing lower that he that there were voice concerns. Is and has yeah, anybody he else heard that? Voice. Yeah, okay. he, he blew out his voice making the Black Album, and um, he went to a, a vocal coach, and they made this tape of vocal warm-ups, and he has had that tape ever since, and he's never lost his voice as far as I know. Uh, there's a little segment in Some Kind of Anger where he's singing along to that tape. Okay. He definitely changed his, his vocals on that record. You know, if you go back a little bit earlier stuff, he, he sings a lot, a lot higher. Um at times almost sounds like a completely different person. You can you can definitely hear it on that record that he kind of becomes the James the 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 stereotype almost of James Hetfield on that yeah. record. I mean what's interesting about this record is if you think about it, I mean it actually sounds good. It's easy to forget now how terrible the production was on a lot of the eighties Metallica records. And that's oh, part yeah. of it their charm, absolutely. But like you listen to this record, you're like, wow, okay, this is what the band actually sounds like if it's actually kind of produced well and with nuance. So, I mean, I yeah. think that almost, that was almost probably a bigger adjustment too. Cause you're like, wait a second. They don't sound like they're like sitting in their garage playing these riffs. Like it actually has like a big sound. And, you know, at the time too, everyone was so primed to hair metal as kind of being, you know, basically, you know, the dominant kind of theme that had really kind of taken over a lot of the mainstream pop stuff and this is basically a pop record i mean at, at the time i mean as much as how you know that's weird to say but all of this stuff was completely accessible they were really well-crafted songs like that completely kind of like obliterated and kind of ran circles around a lot of the kind of you know the sillier elements of hair metal like this was basically like, these were heavy songs like lyrically and like thematically and it was just like you know yeah we are a veteran band and we're gonna you know basically sing about like heavy shit you know and like the ballad I mean, if you think about it like the unforgiven and then nothing else matters those aren't necessarily i mean power ballads they're ballads but they really kind of you know set the tone also for what a metal ballad could be they really kind of pivoted you know the idea of that as well on this record yeah it's, it's interesting how well it, it sat with everything else that was going on with music you know by them simplifying their sound and and making it uh, have a better production value it made it um more commercial but it still could sit next to you know the alternative stuff that was blowing up on the radio or on mtv and not seem totally from another planet <clears throat> sort of it, but they're their own thing i think those 10 years or whatever they spent kind of building their own fan base they were able to kind of enter that change in climate because they were like right this is records blowing up and they're touring and touring and touring i mean music is changing dramatically and they're able to just kind of ride it out it's completely unaffected i think it's important to mention that so they released five singles off this 16 million selling album just in the united states that's not even worldwide sales um released singles for two and a half years which is i mean that's unheard of today now an album drops on a friday you talk about it for a week and then it's forgotten yeah you know there's there's no singles in terms of that sort of time frame anymore it allowed them to continue doing things they were touring for this record essentially up until 1994 that's when they headlined woodstock so that carried them all the way for three years off this record which i think was mentioned earlier i mean that's a 
And that includes the infamous cola headlining tour with Guns N' Roses. Yeah. I was, I was mm-hmm. going to ask. <laughs> yeah. We need to get into that. Yeah. Do we want to... Well, do we want to jump right into that? Because I, I do have an interesting story about it from an ins- somebody that was on stage with Guns N' Roses. Oh. Sh- shall we go ahead and jump in with that? or If you have a story about somebody who was on stage with Guns N' Roses, please share. Okay. All right. The backstory is, is that um, I did Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp a number of years ago, and the guy that was my band leader was Teddy Andreas. Wonderful dude, studio musician, uh, can play almost anything. Um, but the thing was, is that he was asked to join Guns N' Roses uh, as the second keyboard player. Um, if you ever hear any footage uh, of uh, Guns N' Roses during that time, uh, you hear Axel say, okay, Teddy zigzag, take us out or something. That's Teddy. And all that he would really tell us about that tour is that overall, Metallica was always professional, but they would wear the crowd out. And the thing was, is that with Metallica being so professional, wearing the crowd out, and with Axel being so, like, up in the air about, is he going to show up? How long did people have to wait between bands? You know, because the the amount of time between, what was it, Faith No More going on? Soundgarden, I forget which one was the opener. But, uh, and then Metallica playing. And then it could be, like, two to three hours before Guns N' Roses played. No wonder people wanted to uh, riot when things would get canceled. But the thing was, is that that was, those were the two biggest rock bands throughout the world. And so it made sense. But I remember when uh, James Hetfield was interviewed about it, he like puts, he puts two fingers to his head and makes it look like he's shooting himself because uh, I mean, I've, I've heard of people that, you know, those, those shows were amazing, but uh, you know, it's just after what Teddy told me about it, I was like, Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and just so everybody is aware, they're playing in Montreal. Metallica's opening up their set, and a flash pot goes off and burns James Hetfield. He's, like, in the wrong spot. Is that what happened? Yeah, during Fade to Black. Okay. And he, they have to stop, obviously, because he's on fire and um, injured. So instead of... I think Lars Ulrich told it as like they were uh, he had to was Axel said he couldn't go out because his throat was feeling sore and he needed to wait a little longer or something like that. He was like, he was sitting back there drinking champagne. How does that help your throat? (laughs) I mean, he probably I mean, in all honesty, he probably wasn't even there. I mean, if the if they don't think that they're going on until, let's say, two hours after Metallica's done. It's conceivable that Axel isn't even in the building when this happens and isn't planning on being in the building for several hours. So the the idea that they were going to, I mean, I get what Metallica is saying and that would be awesome if that could have happened. Like, you know, they could have ran out quicker and got the show going to keep people happy. But also it's probably not terribly realistic to think that the whole production could be sped up, you know. People can get yeah. to locations and crews can work faster and all that can happen. So, right, yeah, and I remember I remember Jason Newstead sharing this story that um, that they went backstage and just went to the Guns and Roses guys and they acted like they just didn't give a shit, you yeah. know, about like, hey, could you guys speed up? No, don't care. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean, it, it kind of 
I mean, look at the band, both of those bands' trajectories since that time, and it seems like Metallica had more stability. I mean, it's not like every member of the band was either fired or quit. And yeah. right member kept going with the band name, and now it's to the point where a couple of original members means that the band can go from almost not in selling out the House of Blues here in Dallas to playing AT&T Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play. You know, and, but, I mean, it, it, I'm talking about apples and oranges here, but it's all like, you know, Metallica has always been the band that I would, I, if I were to see those shows back in 92, I would be more focused on seeing Metallica. Can we just point out the ridiculousness of waiting two or three hours for the next band to play? That like, is ridiculous. What are you supposed to do? Just stand there? Get drunk <laughs> even more. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Get super drunk. Yeah. And, ri and riot. And riot. Obviously. S yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Um, but let's not lose sight of, I mean, Metallica is a band that, from the start, they pay their dues. I mean, they pay them more than anybody. I mean, in, in the truest sense of that phrase, they live that. You know, for years and years and years, driving around in a van, getting no support from radio, getting no major label money. I mean, not big promotion money um, like some other bands. Play music that was not popular. So, yeah, they appreciate it. You know, when it finally happens clearly, like they know, you know, to do right by the fans. That's not the Guns N' Roses story. I mean, those are guys that kind of fell together and labels swooped them up pretty quick and – um, kind of manufactured their whole underground persona. It, you know, a lot of that isn't real. A lot of that's, you know, they were signed for years before their first record came out. So you're talking about two two bands that came from two different, completely different uh, backgrounds, and you can kind of see how that plays out from that moment and then to Eric's point through the rest of the decade. Well, there might be a uh, Guns N' Roses in the 90s episode <laughs> at some point, and I, I'm sure it'll go in a different uh, direction than than this one um, or on the spaghetti incident yeah exactly Gosh. 15 more minutes axel asking for reggae <laughs> yeah, you should check it out on on youtube that's, that's oh every, great everybody I should love, see that yeah yeah it's so wonderful and but that was in japan it was it wasn't when they were touring with metallica but yeah Ax, uh, 15 minutes of axel rose asking for reggae it's worth your time um also worth your time to segue back into this uh, Live Shit Binge and Purge came out in 93. Yes. It's a box set. Yes, yes, Sold yes. ridiculously well uh -huh. um, for a box set of uh, two, I think it's two albums and a DVD. Is that, is that right? Uh, three CDs. That. Yeah, three CDs, three VHS. For the I mean, kids at home, the... VHS is a former uh, <laughs> audio or video Come on, uh, Tim. Come format. on. They have the internet. They can look it up. But yeah, uh, uh, the Mexico City show was on uh, the three discs. Um, there was a show from Seattle from the late, uh, on the Justice Tour. And then there is a show, I, I'm blanking on where it was, but that was on the Black Album Tour. Okay. Yeah, it was Mexico, San Diego, and Seattle. Yes. Worth noting from that show, there was an 18-minute long bass and guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which includes an instrumental jam between Kirk Hammett and Jason Newstead on Crossroads, which is mm -hmm. essential. 
And um, <laughs> there's also like Third stone from the sun, I think. And then there's like 10 minutes of James Hetfield yelling at the audience <laughs> during uh, uh, Seek and Destroy, where he's like, he yells searching, and then he hands the mic to the audience, and they yell Seek and Destroy. And he does that for like 10 minutes. And uh, he just Jason keeps it. He takes lead vocals on most of that, you know? Yeah. Scanning the scene, Mexico City tonight. Yeah. Like I would say that no, this, just, set, I, this set uh, is probably, if you want a good example of um, Hetfield at his out of control best, this is a good place to start. Yeah, he's not always in tune and he yells a lot, but it's energetic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it is what a live album should be. Like it shouldn't be perfect. I hate and I'm sure they did some overdubbing in the studio afterwards. I mean that just happens now with a lot of overdubbing from what I've heard. How much have you heard? I heard that it was one of those classic ones in the era that was pretty much entirely re recorded in the stu- in the uh, studio. Oh. Ooh. Well now. I've you been lied there. to all this time. Uh oh. <laughs> You've broken young Eric. <laughs> 1993's heart. Okay, okay. Being a teenager and just learning to play the drums and hearing Lars Ulrich like speed up and doing like double hi hats on entertainment, it was exciting, but it kind of screwed me in terms of like when you get all excited about playing, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to stay on the proper beat. And (laughs) it's important to stay on the proper beat because the rest of the band is following you. So is this where, like, the narrative about him not being a good drummer, is this where it starts? Because that kind of creeped up on me. Of, yeah. It seemed like in the last 10 years that's become, like, a huge deal. And I have to admit what that wasn't a, anything I had ever thought of or heard going back to the I, 80s. I think the, that probably times. got combined with his public persona about fighting Napster. You know, he was the spokesperson yep. for fighting yep. Napster. And then you see him, I mean, none of the band comes across in a very flattering light in some kind of monster. And I I think a lot of people projected about what they don't like in themselves and they're like, well, fuck Lars Ulrich. And it's like, (laughs) I mean, like, I I haven't had a big problem with him. Well, what's that say about me? I'm just going to sit this one out, guys. Just shut up. So would you say his playing is pretty, pretty good on this record? It's it's pretty good, but yeah. I mean it can be very sloppy, you know. Gotcha. Okay. And that's the one thing you can't fix with overdubbing <laughs> a live record. Right. Yeah. You, know? you know, like that's, Peter yeah. Chris. Yeah, Peter Chris said about uh is alive. It's like, well, the drums alive. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fix the drums, you know. <laughs> that's a pretty good Peter Chris impression. Yeah. Like that. Thank you. I am the cat man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 93. 94, we've got Metallica headlining the new Woodstock. Now, this is not the one with the riots, correct? This is just the one with, like, overflowing <laughs> shitty toilets. Yeah, Lots the of mud. mud. Yeah. Mud yeah. people. Not, and that's yeah, not, like I'm that. not derogatory. That's like, not a racist thing. There's little people soaking in mud and shit. Because yeah, it, that was that was the one where Green Day got really huge. I mean, mud was being thrown at them. Nine Inch Nails had a huge boost because they yeah. loved playing in the dirt. It was '99 that ended in the riots. Thank that's Limp the Limp Biscuit and Red Hot Chili Peppers, and okay. So right. this is '94. Yes. 
Yes, okay. And this was on MTV, right? You could watch this, I think. Mostly, yeah. A a lot of it. Were they... They had some sort of pay-per-view, I think. Yeah, I think they were... Well, I think they were, like, showing snippets on MTV, and then you could watch the whole thing on pay-per-view. Yeah, correct. Okay. Because I definitely remember seeing Green Day, because their version of When I Come Around got played, like, like a music video, essentially, on MTV for a while. So they don't have a. I mean, the 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 live box set had come out the year before, but they have nothing out at this point, right? No, it's correct, right? Yeah, live shits binge and purge is out in '93. They're headlining Woodstock in '94, and then I assume I, they're going into the studio sometime after Woodstock, and then spending, I guess, all of '95 uh, recording. And write, writing and recording, and then in '96 we get the Load album. I think it's worth noting that they're a band that that don't have a problem doing that. Like a lot of bands don't want to. Basically, when they don't have a record promote, they're all off doing their own thing and they're not playing shows. But it seems like Metallica will just pop up and do a festival or do a couple dates here and there, regardless if they've got a record out or not, just to just to play. Right? I mean, this is kind of yeah, not typical I, for a lot of bands. I've, I've found out in like the last five years that like a lot of promoters just won't book you if you don't have some new product to promote, mm. you know, because it's like the record would kind of in its way for uh, like promote the show. Mm-hmm. So, um, but like Metallica at by that point, Metallica had so much material that people wanted to hear repeatedly live that it was it wasn't necessarily important for them to have new material to play with it. It's like. People wanted to hear Seek and Destroy, Fade to Black, For Whom the Bell Tolls, One, Enter Sandman. And uh, I mean, I mean, I was just looking at the set list and like they opened with Bread Fan, which was awesome. You know, they they, they played that a lot throughout um, the, um, the, the Black Album tour, but they they were playing that back around Hand Justice for All. Uh, just to confirm, they were started recording Load in May of 95. So when was Woodstock? In '94, was that August? In, it was like August. August. Yeah. Okay, so um, it looks like they got uh, got done with their touring s- cycle in '94, and then they um, Hatfield and Ulrich headed to um, Ulrich's house and started recording demos, and they got 30 demos writ- written, and then they took them to um, Bob Rock, and that's when they started working on the album as a full band. So that's how we get into Load. <laughs> Which, like I mentioned, I did go to the midnight sale for this, so I can't, um, I can't begrudge it for that, uh, for uh, it not being the black album. What's everybody's feeling? And I'm, I'm assuming everybody has gone back and revisited it at some point recently. In revisiting this record, well, first of all, did you like it when it came out? And revisiting now, is it better or worse than what you remembered? Annie, I'll start with you. You know, I mean, honestly, I think this record has aged pretty decently, which is, like, weird to say because it, like, you know, I guess it came out, like, 20 years ago then. And so, like, you know, a lot of the production around that time, a lot of the records from that era just don't sound good. And I think this sounds okay. I mean, honestly. And, like, you know, I think of, like, Until It Sleeps and, like, King Nothing. Like, those were, like, monster songs. Like, if those came on the radio, I would absolutely not turn them off at this point but I yeah I mean which is weird to say because I feel like 
I mean, the big problem with this record is that how do you follow up a record like the Black Album? Like, you can't. There's absolutely, like, you, when you became the, like, hugest band in the world, how do you follow that up? It doesn't matter what they would have put out. Like, there's no way it would have even, like, people would have either loved it. I mean, there was no way that people would love it as much, basically. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of screwed, honestly, kind of doing this, you know, especially after touring for, you know, three years. And that wears on you, you know? So... I mean, I think they did the best they could on it. And like I said, I think it sounds better than really it has any right to. Eric? Okay. Here's my thing about Load. When it came out, I was very excited. I mean, I couldn't believe I was listening to it on a disc man. I mean, there's just so much anticipation about it. And by then, I was very into the groove side of Metallica. I wasn't like, oh, my God, I got to have fast music again. So Load was humongous for me, and I love the singles, Until It Sleeps, Hero of the Day. was about reload coming out at the time i thought yes and i i but though i remember i don't rem, i don't think i listened to it that much but i mean songs like two by four okay i as i say two by four i gotta back this up and and show how much of a fan i was of metallica by then is that there was a bootleg of them playing at the london astoria and they played two by four and devil's dance uh on this bootleg it was like a two disc one it was like 40 bucks an import as my local uh record store had it and the thing was when i went to london on a family vacation yeah i know brag, 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 brag. but one of the things that i i really wanted to do was go to the london astoria and take a picture of it and so like i went with my dad my sister didn't understand it she was like what this is this is stupid but i was like i went there took a picture and i was like okay i've been to the astoria years later i looked back at what was on the picture on the marquee jawbox was playing there so it's very ironic that i would (laughs) i would devote an entire chapter to jawbox in my first book and it just so happened that there was the line with metallica anyway but the thing was is that Load and reload, I was all about it. But upon revisiting it, their reload is definitely the weaker record to me. Um, Memory Remains, Fuel, awesome songs. But there's a lot of stuff on Load that I prefer than what's on reload. I think it sounds more like a band that jammed a lot of ideas and they didn't want any of them to go to waste and so given all the years between the black album and load they thought well why don't we just release it all um and so i'm glad they all exist uh there's one song on load that i would be happy never hearing for the rest of my life and that is ronnie 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, hearing them do I was like, oh, God. But the one time I saw Metallica, and this was a big thing for me, was that I got to see the Reload Tour. And Corrosion of Conformity opened, and it was the standard set of, I mean, what they were playing at that time. You know, lots of new stuff, lots of old stuff in medley form. Uh, one of the crew members caught on fire towards the end of it, and they played Whiplash. I mean, it was huge for me. And I was in nosebleed seats at the Summit. Now, the interesting thing about that venue, that is now where Joel Osteen does his sermons every Sunday because the Summit was purchased by the Lakewood Church. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, so where Joel Osteen preaches, yeah, I saw the circus and Metallica there and the Rockets play. So <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I was all about it, but now I can understand there's a there's a draw more towards like Ride the Lightning, Black Album, uh, Death Magnetic. That, I, that's what I go more towards for listening to gotcha. Metallica. Matt. You know, it's funny that Eric mentions Ronnie because I think that sometimes you like get an album and we're, we're all going to be familiar with this, but it's like you look at an album and you see a song title. And you, in this case, for Load, it was Ronnie. You go, that song is not going to be good. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, I mentioned how with the Black Album, I think that there were a lot of Metallica fans that were upset with that record being just a, a sellout kind of record. And... I think Load, you know, being around a lot of Metallica fans, Load was kind of the record where um, I saw a lot of my friends that were big fans just say, man, these guys have just gone completely soft and they've gone completely radio. Now this time they really, really have sold out. But uh, as a rec as a fan, um, I mean, this record, I think Annie was the one that said it, but like as I listen back to this record, you know, now 20 years later, um, it does hold up well and it's like it's pretty astounding when i look at like the songs that we played on the radio just looking at this load record we played six songs off of load and then we played another four songs off of reload which means that in about a two-year period we had like 10 you know new newish metallica songs that were in heavy rotation and that's pretty incredible um when you consider how far into their career they were at that point yeah so but I like it. I think it holds up well. There's, um, I, I tended to like the stuff that got a little bit less radio play, like um, "Poor Twisted Me," um, you know, "Wasting My Hate," and there was a, uh, there was some times that like "Ain't My Bitch" was kind of one of those good outer limits tracks as well. So I thought that there was still some good uh, Metallica stuff that had a lot of attitude on this, on the load record. Jay? So you know what I feel like. Not to interject when he was mentioning, um, you know, like the selling out. I always thought this record is when James cut his hair. I always thought that was like the sellout cutoff point. And he said he cut, cut his hair. hair before. Right. It, it, it was this, but it was like this record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, yeah. what's funny is yeah. they're, they're on the back cover. They're all sitting around a table, like, you know, smoking cigars or whatever with sunglasses on, looking, you know, really smug or cool or whatever, and have short hair. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that was what, like, it kind of infected their, like, image more almost than the music. Because it was like, oh, man, seriously, you guys cut your hair? That was always my impression. I remember that yep. being, like, people being, that like, the story. really upset about that. <laughs> Which was ridiculous. That was the yeah. big media story when the record came out, I remember. And since the video started, it was Metallica cut their hair. 
you know that's what everybody was talking about it actually had very little at least my memory was it they had little little to do with the music so jay did you like it upon re- revisiting it um at this point i was pretty tuned out of the band i mean i was aware it came out i heard the singles um i was on to other things um so revisiting it was really not revisiting it for me. It was probably the first time I've heard it uh, in, 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 in its entirety. So a lot of these, one I'll say, I think this is probably the best produced Metallica record of any. Um, I think this sounds better than the Black Album. I think it sounds better than Death Magnetic. I think from a production standpoint, it's it's dead on. I, I wish all their records pretty much sounded like this. I don't really have a need for them to to play around with production as much as they do. I wish they would just kind of find a good sound and just stick with it. Um, so I, I enjoyed it from that standpoint. I think there's some stuff going on here that, you know, this is a band that um, in later years, you know, Lars talks a lot about his love for Deep Purple, you know, growing up in, uh, where's he from? Um, Denmark. Denmark. Um, and just how, I don't, I don't think people in America understand how big that band is everywhere but America. I mean, they are bigger than Led Zeppelin in Europe. So his love of that band, I never quite got it because, I mean, I believed him, but like it never came through in their music until I listened to this record and a song like Ronnie, like that guitar riff. I mean, that is a, that's a Richie Blackmore guitar riff, you know? So for me, I appreciated that and like understanding, oh, okay, this is where they're coming from. When they do bluesy kind of rock, okay, I can hear the ACDC Deep Purple kind of, rainbow kind of vibe in here and i get what they're you know what they were probably listening to at the time and how it's where they're getting that inspiration from from so from that aspect i enjoyed from the production standpoint and also just them showing their influences a little bit more on their on their sleeve i appreciate it so there's a little bit of interesting trivia with this record it is the maximum length of a cd yeah. 78 yeah. minutes and 59 seconds. It actually was going to go over by 30 seconds, so they had to trim a song down by 30 seconds. And they released, so the Outlaw Torn had 30 seconds of it cut off. And they released it as a, on the, the single for The Memory Remains, which would be the, on the next record, as the Outlaw Torn, parentheses, unencumbered by manufacturing restrictions version. I didn't know about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's, I kind of feel like, like this record is indicative of a problem we have talked about a lot on this show, which is there's too much on it. This would be an awesome 11, 12 song record. It's 14, or actually it'd be a better 10 song record. 10, 10 would be amazing 10 song record. There's a lot of stuff to get through on this record. And one of the songs is over eight minutes. One of them is over nine minutes. Yeah, the shortest is, what, four minutes? Yeah. Not that I'm expecting them to write, you know, two and a half minute long power pop songs. But, yeah, there's a lot of long stuff. But the Black Album Unforgiven 2. Yeah, Yeah, you get the Unforgiven 2, you know. Right, on Reload, yeah. That's that's another long album. That's 76 minutes. So between these two records, you have two really long records. And just imagine if they had released this like taking fuel and the memory remains and maybe one other song, put them on here and then gotten rid of a, I mean, they might've made an album on par with the black album potentially. Definitely. I don't know why fuel didn't make it to this 
to the I don't first think they record. were done with it at the time. You think they were still recording? Yeah. Okay. That's totally possible. I mean, just look at what they play from this era live. Okay. They will pull out King Nothing occasionally. They'll definitely play Fuel. That's something you hear almost every show. Occasionally they do the memory that remains. They did that on Through the Never, and that was phenomenal. But um, you know, just just look in hindsight about how like how much material from this era they still play live, and it's very little. You know. That is very true. They they play so much more of their '80s stuff at this point, and like black album stuff. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it's, it's 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 it is really interesting when you look like that's it's very very minimal from pretty much anything you know prior to this yeah i mean like look at the set list of the cunning stunts dvd uh which was filmed in fort worth i mean that is so heavy on black album load reload and medleys of stuff from all ride of lightning and master of puppets an interesting note about load and reload almost those entire albums are tuned to e flat which for those music nerds out there means you're making things sound darker, basically. I wonder why they went to that for a load and reload. That's a, a kind of an a, a, something that I would have thought they had already done with the Black Album or even the other stuff, but I guess that's all in standard tuning. And in fact, in some of the songs, like Bad Seed is D-flat, which is even darker to yeah. be non-technical about it. But basically... Uh, uh, I think uh, "Sad but True" is all uh, tuned to every. All the strings are tuned to full step down. Why do I know this? Because the first riffs I ever learned on guitar were from a book I still own called Metallica Riff by Riff. <laughs> is oh, it yeah. all? Are they all tuned down, or is it in drop D? Because um, I, I think I always thought of them as being like following the Black Sabbath. You know, tune everything to D or down everything. Turn it. Turn it, the E string down to D. And then you got those Tommy Iommi drop D riffs, which is where they are obviously like, you know, hugely influenced by. But I don't remember yeah. Black Sabbath tuning down a half or a full step to get to get their sound. No, I, I mean, I also have the tablature book of load. <laughs> hey, you do? What I want. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> and um, I'm pretty sure that everything is tuned at least a half step down. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I, I don't know why they my would do that. Enjoyment, you know, opening it up and being like, "Oh, I have to tune my guitar a half step down." Well, oh, okay. I mean, it could do with the vocal. That's sort of a the half step down. I mean, that's like a seasoned classic rock trick, you know, to start with, just to make things easier to sing. Right. For one, you know, you can do it. And it's not noticeable. Like people aren't going to notice that you. And a lot of bands started doing that in the '70s, and you know, still do it. So and it's the kind of thing that maybe they caught on as he was singing more and more, and you know, having issues with the voice probably figured out, hey, if I do not have a step, this all gets a little bit easier. Right. Um, so what can you guys explain to me? I, I honestly, like I said, this is a dark period for me with Metallica. It's a blind spot. What uh, what is the story with the reload album? I don't are these leftovers or is this a true second follow up release? What, what's the story with this record? Um, I remember Rolling Stone writing about it saying that they just had so much material that yeah. they just released yeah. what what was finished yeah. by the load uh, release date and they were going to do more recording while they were on tour supporting load 
and reload would come out uh, much sooner than how long it took for between the black helm and load. Which when we know how Metallica works, it's pretty funny that it actually kind of happened because it's like you look and load comes out in 96 and reload comes out in 97. And by the Metallica standards that we know, that just doesn't seem possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they did intend to make a double album and they were, you know, 14, 15 songs, whatever, into that, had them done and were like, we've been in the studio for so long, let's just put out one album and then we'll finish the rest. But there mm-hmm. was an intent to make a double record. And do it all at okay. once, which yeah. I guess I, I don't know. Maybe they saw that was was Melancholy Infinite Sadness out by this point. Yes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a band that had a success with a double record. So, but then they also, you know, Guns N' Roses use your Illusion one and two. Yeah. I mean, you kind of saw what happened with that, where you know, uh, you know, good luck following that up. So there was also that model too. Right. Where you Back made the- your fans buy two separate <laughs> albums on the first yeah. day yeah yeah brilliant Full price for both i i feel like fuel and memory remains were were those bigger songs than the stuff off a of load i just i don't know those feel like they were bigger hits to me especially uh, fuel. I, I just remember them all having equal airplay on mtv yeah i mean every yeah. time i would see the memory remains video i would watch it Marianne Faithful's voice on that and her appearance in that video just amazing and you know Fuel was a real stripped down uh, sort of video um, but I mean they also made videos for Mama Said and, right. uh, as well as King Nothing um, Hero of the Day I mean they, what it was like five or six singles when you got over the whole load and reload touring cycle you know, I, I think the thing that probably lodges fuel in your brain is that it, it has probably the, out of these two records has had the most staying power as a yeah. single because it got used by NASCAR yeah. for a number of yeah. number of years and uh, been on TV show. I mean, it's been used in video games like there. There's been a lot of use of that song. WWE's used it. Um, yeah. It's been placed a lot. So it's just yeah, out of all which, those singles, it's gotten probably the most airplay. Which is rare for Metallica because they don't let stuff be licensed. I remember it was a big deal when the first Paradise Lost documentary had Metallica songs in it. Yes, but and this was short hair Metallica. They were open to such things. <laughs> okay, so all, right. all right. I just looked up the chart positions, and so it's interesting because the Memory Remains actually hit the top 40. It crossed over and it 28 on the singles charts and hit three on the mainstream rock charts. Um, the Unforgiven 2 was a huge hit on the rock charts. It hit two, but it was only number 59 on the charts. Fuel didn't cross over at all, and it only hit number six on the mainstream wow. rock charts. Hmm. But yeah, yeah I always get that impression too. That was huge. I was surprised also to see that because um, I was looking at those chart positions too, until it sleeps, charted top 10 it, it charted at 10 on the billboard hot 100 and i would not have guessed that oh yeah i i remember that was a big i mean they got play, that video got played a ton on mtv and yeah i'm not that's not surprising to me that song seemed to be everywhere for a while i mean i feel like that's just like 
you know, residue from the Black Album because it was so big that there was no way that that first single back wasn't going to also be huge. Right. So I feel like it was probably just that anticipation. And then, I mean, Hero of the Day, the next one only hit 60 on the, like, on the, the regular, like, the Hot 100. But that was also a number one rock hit. Like, I, I feel like that one was almost bigger, which was weird. Um, but I love, maybe because I like that song a lot more. But, I mean, that's a really, really good song. Yeah, I think that it felt like Hero of the Day and King Nothing were definitely felt, at the time, both felt like they were bigger than Until It Sleeps. They were better songs, I thought. My memory is that the the load stuff was still, I felt like there was a lot of head scratching still going on. And then when Fuel came out, it was sort of like, oh, okay, like Metallica's back. Like they're 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 gonna be fine. At least that was my memory of like you know where where's this band going with the with all the load stuff? And then Fuel came out and it was like oh okay they're they're gonna be huge. It's gonna be all right. In between load and reload, you've got the Lullapalooza, which Chip Midnight called Metal Palooza, and apparently was not <laughs> alone in that description. And then following load and reload, they put in '98, as if they hadn't spent enough time in the studio, they put out the Garage Inc. I guess it's a double album. Yes, it yep. was. Uh, of all the covers, which again spawned more big singles, because I remember, was it Turn Whiskey the Page? In the jar. Yeah, Turn the Page was huge, yeah. Whiskey in the Jar. I mean, and this, I mean, this I mean, features um, the Garage Days Revisited stuff too, right? Yeah, well, yes. there was Garage Days Revisited, Garage Days Re-Revisited. There was the stuff that was came out on the reissue of uh, uh, Kill Em All, where they did Am I Evil and oh, Blitzkrieg. And for me, as a fan of Metallica at that point, and finding out that there was stuff... There were other Metallica songs that were not on any of the records. I mean, we would, me and my friends would pay crazy money to just have those Garage Days bootlegs and yep. hearing, uh, hearing Helpless and, uh, you know, and especially Am I Evil because that was something that they still played almost every show. Uh, so Garage Inc., at, the, at that point, I was like, yes, I'll finally get to hear it. But the thing was, it's like, it was just more material to listen to. And yeah, it was fun to have like their version of Stone Cold Crazy by Queen, as well as uh, hearing a proper studio version of Bread Fan. Yeah. Um, but, but like all the like new uh, covers, I mean, they were fun. You know, like Free Speech for the Dumb, you know, they did another Diamond Head song. They covered Black Sabbath, they covered Nick Cave. Or crying out loud, mm -hmm. um, and, th and then they did Leonard Skinner. You know, Tuesday's gone, uh, which yep. makes sense when you start to listen to those load and reload records in in reverse. Then, like you go, yeah. oh, I now I get where there there's a little bit of Southern rock influence mm -hmm. on those records. Yeah, I mean that's a that was a big influence on James Hetfield before he even knew of the new wave of British heavy metal through Lars. 
He was really into Ted Nugent. He was into Southern rock and he loved Aerosmith. And that's what informed like the catchy nature of his riffs. And then along comes Lars and he's like, Hey, let's, let's cover, you know, Diamond Head and Blitzkrieg. And it's like, okay, I can take those kinds of riffs, but make them sound darker and scarier. And, uh, and Lars I mean, it was, it was very much, part. sorry, what? I didn't mean to cut you off, Eric. No, no, no. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, that was that kind of influence, you know? Uh, I'm going to admit something here. I had not heard Stone Cold Crazy before Metallica covered it. Me neither. Wow. And what? when I went oh, okay. yeah. when I went back and listened to it, I was like, oh, this is actually a pretty heavy song to begin with. Oh, yeah. Like, I thought, oh, yeah. it's a Queen song. It's probably not that heavy. Oh, oh no, yeah. it's, a, it's a heavy song. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of you know, early. Yeah, early Queen is totally like it's it's so different than the stuff that everyone kind of knows. It's awesome. Yeah, I had had that uh, as it was the sing. It was the B side to Enter Sandman on the cassette single, and I remember yeah. somehow getting my hands on that when it came out in whatever '91 and being same thing with you, Tim. I hadn't heard the Queen version, so I, when I went back and saw there was a Queen song, I was like, oh, I got to check this out because I was getting in the Queen at the time. Like, oh, I'm sure the Queen version will be really different. <laughs> when I heard it, I was like, holy yeah. shit. Like, this is amazing. One thing, yeah, one thing that I was a little disappointed that this didn't show up on Garage Inc., but all the B-sides from the Black Album didn't make it on there, and that includes mm -hmm. Elevator version of Nothing Else Matters, which has <laughs> no, no drums. And if I remember correctly, instead of never cared for what they do, instead of that, it's just James Hetfield, and he's harmonizing with himself, doing "I'm not shitting you." Yeah, na 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 na. Yeah, na 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 na. I mean, it was funny. It was so funny. But anyway, so just to put it in perspective here, the run that Metallica was on, just domestically, 16 million of the Black Album, five million of Load. 4 million of Reload and another 5 million of Garage Days or Garage Inc. or whatever you call it. Yeah. And then Garage whatever Inc. the number was for uh, we Binge and Purge, what was that? What did I say? That was 15 million, but that was calculated million, yeah. based on number of, if it's a double disc, it gets two. What was it? Correct. Now? Okay. It's it's basically, you can cut it. I know that with the double CDs, if it's a million, that basically means it's sold 500,000 copies. Okay. So they're at a roughly 30 million records by this point in the decade, which puts them at a, a, a territory that's like nobody else is approaching. I mean, you've got, I mean, you've, in terms of that, you're talking about pop artists, you're talking like Shania Twain and like a few other people. So the next logical thing is to go record with a symphony orchestra <laughs> in San Francisco and put out the S&M record with Michael Kamen, which came out in November of um, 99. So were they the first band to do this orchestra thing? I was trying to remember who started this trend. I don't first? think so. Mm, who was first? No, Deep Purple did it in, in 1969. Well, I meant the 90s, because like Kiss oh, did the 90s. it, and then uh, Scorpions did it, and it seemed like every rock band suddenly had to do a orchestra album i was trying to remember yeah. if they were the ones that started that whole thing they may have been well, that's possible i i think a key distinction guys is that it was michael Kamen, and michael Kamen was at the time just an amazing arranger 
and you know what he added to nothing else matters the original album the original black album version was fantastic and he later worked with queens right i mean he, he did a lot of stuff and so the thing was is that at the time that snm came out same thing with load i was like oh my god this is so amazing but i was listening to it the other day and i'm like in some parts the orchestra adds a lot of really cool stuff mm-hmm. many other parts it's 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 excessive yeah totally and it i i think it's there's some parts where it's like counterintuitive like i would have thought with enter sandman you would you would play off of that riff but they do they don't the orchestra doesn't play off the riff way you think they would to make it more dramatic they do this like weird like counter melody to the to the main riff which i found completely bizarre i felt like it was uh i can't listen to mashups i know that's something that you can listen to tim because i always i'm distracted and i want to hear one of the it just makes me want to hear one of the two songs (laughs) you know what i mean and and it was the same thing with this record as i listened to i was like i I just want to hear what either what the orchestra is doing or what metallica is doing i don't want to hear the two together like so i was like they're in separate rooms playing something remotely similar but not always of one yeah i also found it distracting with the song like for whom the bell tolls because the original song it has a very subtle eastern influence on the guitar if you're not paying attention to it you're probably not going to hear it it's not like a blatant like cashmere type thing but when you add the strings and they play the same notes it sounds like it's off the soundtrack to lawrence of arabia like it is mm. so it's 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 whatever when you play those two notes right next to each other that's playing in that eastern scale uh the, are you talking about the dun, 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 yes yeah <laughs> it's a little uh epic hollywood movie it yeah. sounds like an epic hollywood movie it's crazy yeah it's it's like uh, oh my like god a yeah. Okay. A ship at sea and a pirate yes. fight. And- <laughs> I don't know how much this was true, but I had heard that Francis Ford Coppola was a season ticket holder to the San Francisco Orchestra, and he went to the show, and he was like, "Oh, I- I'm not having this," and like bolted after the first song. <laughs> and I was wow. like, "You do know this is Metallica, right?" I mean, it gets to a point in the show. Yes, I've watched it on DVD because, you know, hello, Metallica fan. But, um, like, people are crowd surfing in an orchestra. (laughs) (laughs) At an orchestrated show. And, you know, they played two new songs, uh, No Leaf Clover and Minus Human, that were not uh, redone uh, in any other place. So that was a part of the poll to it. But uh, it was it was something very excited about. But uh, you know, there's so much Metallica stuff to listen to, <laughs> and and it still sold uh, over five million records. Yeah. So, so by the way, that Francis Ford Coppola thing is real. I just found a review of that, the original show from 1999. They absolutely okay. said that he had for the exit early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not that's not unsurprising. Or it's, yeah. It's not, it's not surprising because I recently went to one of those rock musician plays with the orchestra shows ben folds played with the columbus what oh okay i thought you i thought you were about to say you saw ingway malmstein no 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 (laughs) it was i have seen ben i saw ben folds with uh fort worth symphony orchestra yeah he does that tour where he he plays he he played in columbus 
a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. And I, there were definitely women, like a pair of old women sitting next to us who were seasoned ticket holders to the orchestra who were like, what is going on? Because this guy's like dropping F-bombs in between songs oh, yeah. and, you know, talking about stuff that would not be appropriate to the normal orchestra goer. And um, they looked quite befuddled by the whole Ben Folds experience. Which I thought was hilarious, but yeah, I could. I, it wasn't on the you know Francis Coppola level, but that I could definitely see where people would just be ticket holders and then be thrown off. So this is Metallica. We've had a attempted double album, which just became two albums. Then the covers double album. Now an orchestra album. It seemed like they were basically getting everything out of their system in terms of what can we do. We've headlined the biggest shows. We've played with orchestras. We were one of the top-selling artists of the entire decade. And then we have Napster in 2000. And then Jason Newstead leaves the band. And then we have St. Anger. And then we have the Some Kind of Monster documentary, which may constitute a slide downward, depending on your opinion of St. Anger, or if Jason Newstead leaving was a bad thing or a good thing, or fighting over Napster was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. How... At this point, would you consider? I mean, clearly the, the band was the mo- one of the most was the most dominant rock band of the decade. That's pretty easy to to see. But would, did they leave that decade? Does it seem like they left that decade sort of exhausted or kind of chasing after something in terms of doing all these other projects? And you know, they could have gone back into the studio theoretically after Reload and. You know, started working on new material after doing the Lollapalooza shows and stuff like that. Um, or, yeah, Lollapalooza shows. I guess at that time it was still shows, right? There was a tour. Yeah. I think they've been, I mean, I think they've been chasing inspiration since then. I think they've tried a couple bunch of different things. We can agree or disagree of, of which of those have worked, but I don't know. It certainly feels like a band trying to, trying to, put themselves in a situation where they can be inspired either through playing with Lou Reed or whatever they were doing on St. Anger and sort of having the internal sort of turning that external and and making either movie out of, and then I think with death magnetic, I felt like that was very much a, well, let's be inspired by our own sort of past. Let's go back and understand who Metallica is and try our best to give people a classic, you know, more of an eighties style Metallica record. So in some ways, I guess my take on this will be they've done better than Van Halen in, in terms of, you know, when we did that episode that sort of Van Halen just kind of threw in the talents that screw it and we're just going to go out and do tours and, you know, uh, this they're trying. I still don't quite feel like they're as inspired as they were in the 90s. So I would say it's a bit of a downward turn or at least plateau since then. That's my take. I would say it's a band that is comfortable with their history at this point um and as it was all very publicly done through some kind of monster they realized of how much in denial they were about cliff burton's death and all the things that they put on jason newstead that slowly made him want to quit the band and the thing is and like this is like one this this is my favorite moment in some kind of monster it's when bob rock says to him it's like I don't think you should settle. I think you should find the right guy. When This is when they're trying out all those bass players. 
If you don't knock it out of the park with any of these guys, then you're going to have the same problems that you had with Jason in five years' time. And they absolutely made the right decision with uh, hiring Robert Trujillo to join the band because he, he's I, by then he was such an established bass player with uh, Infectious Grooves and Ozzy Osbourne and just what he has brought to that band. I mean, James Hetfield even says to him flat out, it's like, dude, you make us play better. And Jason Newstead has gone on to do lots of projects, which is something that was is something he was always into. And he seems much happier. He's even played shows with Metallica. Like they did those anniversary shows where they got Dave Mustaine to come play. Uh, Lloyd Grant, who played a solo on an early version of Hit the Lights, I believe the Metal Massacre 2 version. But uh, it, 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 was, it was definitely a situation where listening to Death Magnetic is that this was a record that they could make now, but they could not make in 1996. Hmm. I just had a thought. Is uh, Robert Trujillo the equivalent of uh, Wolfgang Van Halen in uh, in no, terms of uh, no. revitalizing? Don't, Tim, Tim, no, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> don't go there, dude. You know, the, the thing about what Jason brought to the band is a lot different than what Robert yeah, brings to the band. Absolutely. And I mean, he. It, it's just like the band was just com- uh, Let's put it this way. Towards the end of the St. Anger tour, they were playing Master of Puppets from start to finish, and they weren't playing anything from St. Anger. Now, we can all talk about St. Anger and all that, blah, 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 blah. But the key thing is that it made them accept their history, and it made them not afraid to play fast again. But the thing was is that as the 90s were ending, metal was changing, music in general was changing. Because Metallica was not going to make a rap metal record. But I think what St. Anger turned out to be was that it was much more of a record where they were trying to be in the, like, trying to one-up Slipknot or something like that in terms of sound. And just, you know, all these bands talk about, oh, yeah, our record is really raw and everything. And, well, a band actually makes a raw record and a lot of people dismiss it. snare drum yeah i'm talking to you tim yeah i'm talking to you jason but (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's just like okay when bands talk about oh yeah records really raw it doesn't sound really raw it's very polished but metallica stuck to their word and they made a really really raw record with saint anger and that if they hadn't made saint anger they wouldn't have made the masterpiece that is uh death magnetic because let me tell you something I was jamming with uh, my band yesterday, and we tried to play the first minute of the end of the line just for fun. I We couldn't play it. These guys are in their 50s playing with that kind of precision. Who else can you say can play with that precision other than Slayer? That's a good point. I, I You know, the age thing, I guess. Although he's, uh, let's see. Yeah, he would have been, well, he would have been late 40s when, he, when they wrote, yeah. wrote and recorded that album. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, they weren't 25. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And hopped up on whatever they were doing at that point, drugs and, and or, you know, drinking Lots like maniacs. Yeah. Remember, alcoholica. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, yeah. it's interesting mentioning that stuff. You look at the, their catalog. I mean, they were doing a lot, but they had six years between Reload and St. Anger, and that six-year period pretty much happened to coincide with, like, rap metal's heyday. So like they, I mean, as much for as active as they were, and as as much as you know, they basically all this negative attention for attacking Napster. They were sort of absent, like you know, they kind of removed themselves from the narrative at that point. 
so they weren't making a really embarrassing metal record because they knew that they were like there was no way we could do that but it is just sort of interesting all this stuff flourished when they were sort of off doing whatever they were doing the garden was un un uh, unattended so the weeds were allowed to grow <laughs> yeah <laughs> The drop detuning flourished. Yeah. It was yes. like a weed, unabated, like a uh, mold or a fungus. Exactly. That is the words we would use for Limp Biscuit and whatever else happened during that. Yeah, what could have been period. an amazing thing because that first corn record is so awesome. Right. And, Absolutely. and the thing is, is that Limp Biscuit hijacked it and made it okay for dude bros and douchebags to like that, and it was over. Thankfully, the Deftones are still making great stuff. <laughs> yeah, they never should have been lumped in with all those people anyway. They were so much better yeah, than that. I agree. I agree. Well, what's what's interesting about it, I think it's easy to forget how much damage really Lars's, you know, Napster attacks really did on the band. Yeah. Just because he came off so badly in that. Yeah. Because he just came off, I mean, basically they were coming off of, you know, and it was because basically that they discovered that a demo of their song, I Disappear... Um, was receiving radio play and it was basically like it was leaked on Napster. And so they were so ticked off because, you know, they're so protective of their work that it just ended up, I mean, whenever you sue fans or even there's a perception you're even involved with that, that's never going to end well at all. And the thing is, is that what Lars Ulrich was predicting did happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like people are going to, want to hear the full thing before they buy it which was already in place in the day of tape trading and dubbing stuff on cassette but the amount of distribution that you know napster could wield was way much more of a problem that would hurt sales and yes it did hurt sales but do i download absolutely because i want to hear what i'm gonna buy before i listen i want to hear it before i buy it you know i mean because like the record industry was ripping off for decades it was like the only way that you can own this one song that you really like on the radio or these two songs is that you have to buy something that costs between 12 to 17 dollars and along comes this you know napster was a breakthrough and that was the seismic shift in the music industry. And L- Lars was the spokesperson of saying, like, guys, you know, we're, we're not okay with this. But it was so embraced by technology that, um, you know, that horse left that barn, you know. And um, it was so, one of those but, things where it was one of those things where this isn't the way that you fight this battle, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't think they took the the they didn't step back and think that through and they just threw themselves out there. And the next thing you knew they had a mess on their hands and I, you know, it took, yeah. a, and I, I don't even know if they've completely recovered from it. I mean, it, it was, it, it looked bad. Um, and it as somebody who helped, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say as somebody ahead, who was into Napster at the time, I mean, I thought it was funny just from the standpoint of like, I started this off saying I didn't buy any Metallica albums, but I had almost all of them and they weren't from Napster. I had them on cassette tapes, dubbed from friends because, you know, they were a band I kind of liked, but I wasn't going to spend 12 bucks or 15 bucks to buy the cassette because I didn't like it that much. But it was like, you know, I liked having it and I liked listening to it occasionally. And I think that concept was the part that they, they, they missed at that time. And most bands that take on this subject continue to miss is that just because somebody downloaded something isn't a lost sale. They may have never intended to buy it in the first place. 
you know, they just downloaded it, you know, so don't, you shouldn't equate things because you're going to end up kind of sounding ridiculous and pissing people off. Um, And so, yeah. And it didn't help that Lars Ulrich's personality is arrogant and (laughs) that here he's in front of Napster and talking with MTV news and he's being very well spoken, but the way he's saying it is incredibly arrogant. And so condescending. Yeah. 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 And so people are like, well, fuck you, you rich rock star. I'm going to, I'm just going (laughs) to get all your music from, from Napster now. And uh, I mean, and like, I remember Jason Newstead said like, well, the people that are downloading it on Napster, they're not fans. I'm like, "Uh, you are so wrong, dude. Um, Because this is everybody. I mean, I, I remember getting Napster thinking that this was the way that I could find stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else, like a Coldplay live concert. I was huge into parachutes, and I was also huge into Jimmy Eat World, and there was stuff that was not on a proper CD that people were trading. And the thing yep. was is that a few weeks after I got Napster, I introduced one of I lived with three other guys at the time, and one of them just he was having a hard time finding a Britney Spears song, so I said, we'll try Napster, and he finds it. And he's like, oh, my God, this is Napster. And then we had an, uh, one of our other roommates who was much more into, like, country music. He spent the rest of that semester downloading and burning stuff, like, <laughs> almost all day and most of the night. And when I saw how fast that changed, I mean, we're talking just a few weeks. I was like, whoa, this is a problem. Well, let's not forget that uh, our Lars is, comes from a bit of a privileged background, right? His dad was a professional tennis player. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I don't, maybe he wasn't uh, as hard up to buy music as, as I know I was, you know, like I said, I, I had enough to buy probably one tape a month. Yeah. You know, what what's it going to be? If I want to hear music, I'm going to have to put on the radio or I'm going to have to dub it from somebody else. Or when Napster came along, it was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do this because I can't afford to buy it. Yeah. And what has happened, I have seen is that, for people that were very young when Napster came through, what it made them become are very well-seasoned, well-thought-out, knowledgeable music fans. How is that a bad thing? Yes, I can understand the physical product. There is a less of a desire for it, but people still want physical product. And with the way that Metallica has embraced like Record Store Day, I mean, weren't they the curators of Record Store Day this year? Yep. <laughs> You know, they like the physical product. They put out that live at Grimey's 10-inch. Um, and they embrace streaming, as Annie, you know, you said about earlier, about, you know, that, that show that they did right before the Super Bowl. You know, was it too loud for the Super Bowl? I mean, it, it's it's a band that embraces what technology is. As a matter of fact, I think I, uh, was it Lars said he downloaded an advanced copy of Death Magnetic? <laughs> yeah, I think that was Lars' sound. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, it's, it's just like, it's kind of worked out. I'm very curious to hear what they're going to do with their next record, but I would not anticipate it to be that big of a shift uh, between Injustice for All to the Black Album. I think it's just going to be more of what Death Magnetic was. Yeah, I feel like what you said about them being comfortable with their history at, at this point, I think that was a very important step. And I think that, like, with them putting out the Death Magnetic record, that was a statement that they, you know, they understand what their fans would like to hear from Metallica. And it's like, and they, I think, 
went back to that template and made a record, you know, that they felt comfortable with and that wasn't going to just be them adhering to something just for the sake of the fans. They made a record that they were also proud of. And I think that's going to be the way you're going to see them continue to move forward is, you know, by making records that um, fulfill what they want to do artistically um, while probably sticking pretty close to what the fans expect legacy wise. And they're working with Rick Rubin again. So no, they're not. They're not. Really? I just checked the Wikipedia. It said they were. Oh, I, I heard that they were working with the guy that worked on the most recent Slayer record. I think that's that's correct. Yeah, I talked to when I talked to Kirk, uh, Kirk Hammett, I guess, uh, earlier this year um, or towards the end of last year. Yeah, it, it was the guy that uh, worked on the Slayer record. I think the guy's name is Greg. I think, but yeah, that's the yeah, guy he's all, working it, with. Both of them are listed. I think Ruben's role is more like as a sounding board. It sounded yeah. like like they he doesn't actually show up in the studio. They just send him demos, and he's like, "Yeah, I like that," or "Change that," or yeah. He's he's not a guy who sits and twiddles knobs. He uh, right. he seems to uh, be more or less active depending on the artist. Like I think with Black Sabbath, he was probably more active than he normally is. But with like Metallica, it's, it's mail mail in your tapes. I'll let you know. <laughs> mail in your tapes. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get to him when I can. Post your tapes to the. Uh... To the uh, local post office, and I will pick them up in my PO box, gentlemen. Yeah. So, thinking about the future, um, you know, we're seeing obviously this year has been a a dark year for rock uh, artists passing. As you and we see other bands just not able to continue, like just getting to that age, sort of the first wave of classic rock bands, especially drummers. You know, sort of get to the point where you just you know, Neil Peart, for, for example, just just don't feel like they can want to or can continue to play live. Like when you start to look at this generation of bands that, you know, are playing faster and very technical and much more physically demanding than maybe, you know, some of the bands that preceded them. How many years are we going to get out of like a Sam Metallica? Like how far are they going to be able to go? Or is it going to the point where like, Lars just isn't able to play a lot of those songs at some point and they have to wrap it up sooner than maybe some other bands did. I don't know. How is this all going to play out? I don't know. That's a good question. Because they're getting up there, right? I mean, these guys have got to be, what, what? mid-50s at this point? Um, James is like, he's going to be 53 this year. Yeah, same thing with uh, Lars. He'll be 53 in December. So, yeah, I mean, that's this isn't Charlie Watts playing, okay. right? you know, R&B and, you know, mid-tempo rock songs. No. I mean, it's... I think these guys like doing... I think they like what they're doing with Metallica. Like, I think they do enjoy doing Metallica. So it's like, I think we've certainly seen that they have all started to enjoy pursuing other interests. But I feel like they're going to remain dedicated to the Metallica cause in one form or another. I think we would have at least another 10 or 15 years. I could see them going the distance like Deep Purple has. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, they still, you know, I mean, they've, you know, and the, the shows that I've sort of streamed in recent years, they've done, like, they still they still can play. I mean, obviously they're not, like, the, like, ridiculously frantic speeds of, you know, 30-some years ago, but, I mean, what band is? But it's still, like, really, really respectable. And like they still, you know, I mean, James actually, I mean, he James does his, you know, vocal hot dogging, 
and you know but it's you know kirk is still such a great guitarist too that like i mean it, it i almost feel like more than lars that metallica kind of lives or dies with him and he's still great mm-hmm. you know what i mean so that's like as long as like he's kind of you know still agile enough to do that i mean i think it's you know fine you know and lars has actually been better in recent years the stuff i've seen like i don't know but just because they don't they don't actually play that many live shows anymore i mean they're you know they're always just because they're doing so many different things and i think that helps too like they haven't done a full scale like u.s tour in what like six years seven years it was after it was after death magnetic like it's been a long time so i mean that helps too because they're they're not really out there like you know basically on these huge physically demanding tours either so where does this leave us with the 90s is this a band that entering into the 2000s had survived the 90s or did the 90s take a chunk out of them and leave them suffering by the side of the road? Eric, let me yeah. start with you. I would say the 90s took a lot out of them, but if they didn't have the 90s, we wouldn't be talking about Metallica now. Interesting. You know? Matt, what do you say? I think that looking at what they did in the 90s tonight is I was getting ready for this. Like, I think they really survived the 90s in an admirable fashion and made some good records that obviously, as we've talked about, like performed well at radio and they sold a lot of records, which is really kind of remarkable when you think about how many bands from their era kind of like um, struggled heavily and fell by the wayside, you know, when they were up against grunge and everything else. You know, Metallica really was able to just keep being Metallica throughout the decade and I don't think that they really hit their crisis point until they put out the St. Anger record, which, um, by the way, I know that Eric has said, you know, good things about the record, but it's like, I, I like that record too. Like, I think it's kind of a shame that production wise so much. Well, I think it's a shame that so much of the focus got put on the production because I think that you, there are some good songs on the St. Anger record that I think that if they would have had the standard Metallica production, I think that uh, songs like Frantic and the title track would be just as well regarded as other stuff in the catalog. But yeah, I mean, looking at the 90s, I think that um, they did a great job of being Metallica through the decade and came out okay on the other side. Annie? Yeah, I would pretty much agree with kind of what everyone else has said. You know, I do think that, you know, Metallica, I mean, if you think about the 90s, they barely took a break the entire decade, you know, like not even like really like a good chunk of time off. You know, so I think that, like, I think if you look from the start of the decade to the end of the decade, they really grew as a band and really did a lot of different things. And so, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's kind of seemed inevitable that there would sort of just be sort of some cracks in the facade and, you know, a little bit of a breakdown, which is basically what happened. But, I mean, I think, you know, overall, I mean, they looked also what they put out. I mean, if you talk about a decade's worth of just material, they were unbelievably creative. Like, you don't see bands having a decade like they did anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think... It's probably not possible anymore. No. No. Yeah, we'll never see anything like... I, I can't imagine anything like this again. I mean, to, to go from the world's biggest underground band to the literally the world's biggest band in a matter of a couple of years and then spend the rest of a decade going all the way from, you know, completely changing your image and doing having huge hits with your own songs having huge hits with covers playing with an orchestra i mean the ground that they covered in in that 10 years you know it constitutes an entire career i think at the end they they ended it 
pretty strong. I felt like even though I don't, I don't know that this orchestra, the orchestra album really holds up to me very well. I do remember it being pretty, pretty big at the time. And it definitely put them in a position where I think you had to look at them and say, you know, they're not afraid of doing anything at this point. You know, they're willing to try almost uh, go in any direction, um, which was a great way, I think, to end it in the decade. I think it's unreasonable to ask much more of this band, you know, in terms of if, if you look at did they survive or not, I don't know how much more can they do. I mean, you're you're sort of getting into looking at other bands um, that are huge, like ACDC or the Rolling Stones, and um, how many of them had, you know, gigantic multi-decade careers. You know, most of them are single decades where they were the biggest band, and then after that they just kind of maintain and just continue to make solid material very few can you say really you know had multiple decades where they were just at the top so commercially yeah so i think we're at the uh i guess the agreement that although metallica in the 2000s had maybe uh some struggles the 90s were uh the decade in which I think they, I guess you could say they kind of established not just who they were, but what metal music and hard rock were going to be for the next decades to come in a lot of ways. I think so. I think so. So just I on that level, they, they, it would have to be that they survived it. They might have taken a few hits along the way in terms of just getting worn down by the end of the decade, but they definitely were not, they were not putting out Van Halen 3 at the end of the decade. So, <laughs> not doing a porn soundtrack. Not doing a porn soundtrack. Uh, well, yeah. we uh, we've gone as, as almost as long as those two load and reload albums. <laughs> so, uh, probably be a good spot for us to to wrap up our Metallica in the '90s discussion. We need to thank uh, our uh, roundtable guests from the uh, Cleveland, Ohio area. They're in the same building. But we didn't hear them okay. cross over Mike and and Mike Wise. So good job separating the audio up there, uh, Matt and Annie. Absolutely, we're uh, professionals, and we we greatly appreciate that. And people can check out uh, Matt's work at ultimateclassicrock.com. and you're on Twitter at at m wardlaw. That is correct. And, and can I throw a quick shout out? Uh, I think that we need to tell people, uh, since we talked a lot about Napster, uh, just Google Napster bad and watch the uh, entertaining cartoons that come up. That was really one of the most entertaining things to come out of the whole Metallica Napster thing. It's, it's Metallagreed. That's, they're on YouTube. Yeah, Metallica. Metallicops. Oh, yeah. Please, please check those out. And then, of course, there's are those the, lost- the commercial, are the cartoons. Is that what that is? Those were cartoons that were produced by a guy named Bob Cheska, C-E-S-C-A, I think. That ended up doing like work for Motley Crue and some other bands on the heels of like right. doing these cartoons. So he got himself a I nice. Re- I think he, yeah. So. No, I, re- I think I vi- Motley Crue like commissioned them actually. Absolutely. For a new tattoo. Please tell me I don't know that. I think I you do that remember- actually. <laughs> I vaguely remember these uh, these animations. I just remember there was a killer Lars impersonation, and then I, I think the artwork matches what Motley Crue did for New Tattoo. The other little factoid I was just going to point out, which was uh, there was a stray mention of Tuesday's Gone from the Garage Inc. record, and I felt like we should probably point out 
that there was quite an all-star cast on that one. You had Jerry Cantrell and uh, Sean Kenny from Allison Chains, Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity, uh, um, Gary Rossington from Skinnerd, um, Jim Martin from uh, Faith No More fame. And of interest, and the reason I'm mentioning all this, uh, you had John Burr on a Metallica record. So I felt like we should point that out. Oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> Annie, AV Club, Salon, Las Vegas Weekly, Cleveland Scene. Am I forgetting anything? Uh, yeah, I write a lot of places. That's good enough. Yes. Pl- <laughs> I'm on Twitter. That's where all my stuff goes. Follow her on Twitter. On the Twitter at uh, Annie Zaleski. That's the uh, Twitter handle, correct? Correct. Eric Grubbs. Yes, Do sir. You Know Who You Are podcast. Mm-hmm. The book post, which you mentioned earlier, on the interwebs at Theme Park Experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Twitter is uh, Eric. Is there an underscore? Yes. Or, yes. See, I, I get these things. After like five or six visits, I rem- still remember people's Twitter handles. Uh, it's like telephone numbers now. If you don't have to like look it up, you just kind of, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know my wife's phone number because it's just, <laughs> I just hit a button and it, and it goes to her. So, yeah. which is probably not a good idea. Um, um, can I, can I plug this about the podcast? Yes. Because the last time I did it, it was only available on SoundCloud because I was, I was just too afraid. <laughs> of like a lot of things but I, but after i was on the rocket fuel podcast you know y'all have talked to jeff takas yep who's mm-hmm. a great dude he just told me how to get on to itunes and stitcher and i, I just was yeah, i had a total eureka moment and you can now find do you know who you are the podcast that's what it's listed as do you know who you are the podcast on itunes stitcher as well as soundcloud nice. and Excellent. um Actually, as I as we are finishing wrapping this episode up, I'm going to upload my two-hour fan commentary that I did with Hope for Death Proof, the Quentin Tarantino film. So that's that's the latest stuff that I'm. Wait, I'm so like you can match up the commentary with the movie? Yeah, yeah, that's that's wow. the intent. Yeah, cool. And we talked for the whole two hours, and uh, I, I hope it gives people a glimpse of how much fun that, uh, Hope and I have talking to each other, um, especially talking about movies, talking about, you know, where do we come from? And, uh, you know, I, I met Hope through podcasting, and she does an awesome podcast called Macabcast. And, uh, I mean, it, 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 let's just put, let's put it this way. It's like getting to talk to Matt and Annie is great because they met through <laughs> writing. And like Hope and I met through writing as well as podcasting, so I'm I'm I feel very comfortable and happy to be on talking with y'all. So thanks. Awesome. Jay and I did not meet through podcasting, <laughs> <laughs> and our wives are disgusted that we do podcasting. Yeah, they still don't understand why we do this. What are you doing up there? Right. If you like what you heard, folks, go to the aforementioned iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. We would greatly appreciate that you should leave all the people who have podcasts on this show uh positive feedback wherever they post them itunes stitcher soundcloud other google play something like that also we have our patreon page where you can donate a dollar or 250 a month and you can get exclusives and uh 250 gets you a review you can know the you can do the old-fashioned review over at digmeoutpodcast.com 
Um, I think that's it. I think I have pimped everything for Jay, Matt, Annie, Eric, and myself. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around for the almost two hours of this very fun episode. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Watch it, baby. Mirror, baby.